Hello, strangers, and welcome to the April edition of the Strange Horizons Poetry Podcast. I'm your host, Chiro Faenza, and this month we have four new poems, the first of which comes from Jose Gonzalez Vargas, Last Time, followed by The Day After We Saved the City by Rose Victor, Iris by T.D. Walker, Explorers by Ethan Chua, and finally, The Sign of the King by Mary Soon Lee. All right, let's begin. Last Time by Jose Gonzalez Vargas. I was the daughter of a mighty sovereign whose realm was as old and vast as the known world, and you were just an old slave, a literary bag of bones pulling the stones for the temple that my father demanded to reach above the clouds. I saw your body under the sun, agile despite your age, whipped by the foreman among those of your kind. Even though I saw you once and never knew your name, the image of your body remained close to my heart on my deathbed. You were a strapping young warrior, docile and unstoppable, whose life was tracking thick forests and snow-laden steps with your horde. I was an old monk with aching legs, almost blind, dedicated to the mysteries of the fate, to preserving his light in this abominable world. From the distant north you came, during all the walls of the monastery where my sullen life had passed, as I hid in the scripturian praying to not be found. As I tried to save an ancient tomb, or eyes met while you opened my chest with a sturdy swing of your battle axe. We were two sailors in a fragile vessel crossing the ocean with gold and pearls and many goods, objects we could only dream to call ours one day. We were strong and fearless, men as only the sea can make. At night, I could sing dirty melodies that made you laugh like a barking dog, or you would tell me the same old tales as we shared some rum. Neither of us minded our limited repertoire, since we might as well be the only ones in the world. We died embracing each other, lost at sea, after the pirates had raided and burned the only place we could call ours. I was an aristocratic diplomat and you were an opera singer. I suspect that you read my secret correspondence after a night of passion, a small fee for having you in my arms. When I heard you die of pneumonia, I jumped from a bridge the coldest night of winter. You were my native wet nurse and I was the deaf-blind daughter of a colonial officer. When war came, they took us outside to shoot us. I was so happy to feel the sun in your hand as I departed. I was the wife of a generalissimo, you were my strongest son. I always took personally that you didn't like women and didn't shed a tear at your funeral. You were a racist old woman from Alberta whose children never called and I was the Pakistani phone operator trying to find your lost package. Our conversation was the longest either of us had that week. Last time we met was in a rehab center. I was a suicidal middle-aged businessman who had reached in 20 years and lost it all in 20 minutes. And you were a lesbian teenager living from the streets who was shaking back and forth on the bunk down the hall. Despite 
are hating each other almost instantly, you made me wonder what kind of parent I could have been. Now that we go again to the world of the living, I hope that this time, no matter the age, no matter the race, no matter the body, I can love you, and you can not be back. Last time by Jose González Vargas I was the daughter of a mighty sovereign whose realm was as old and vast as the known world, and you were just an old slave in a leathery bag of bones pulling the stones at the temple that my father demanded to reach above the clouds. I saw your body under the sun, Ayal, despite your age, whipped by the foreman among those of your kind. Even though I saw you once and never knew your name, the image of your body remained close to my heart on my deathbed. You were a strapping young warrior, docile and unstoppable, whose life was tracking thick forests and snow-laden steps with your horde. I was an old monk with aching legs, almost blind, dedicated to the mysteries of the fate, to preserving his light in this abominable world. From the distant north you came, tearing down the walls of the monastery where my sullen life had passed, as I hid in the scripturian, praying to not be found. As I tried to save an ancient tomb, where eyes met, while you opened my chest with a sturdy string of your battle axe. We were two sailors in a frail vessel, crossing the ocean with gold and pearls and many goods, objects we could only dream to call ours one day. We were strong and fearless, men as only the sea can make. At night I will sing dirty melodies that make you laugh like a barking dog, or you will tell the same old tales as we shared some rum. Neither of us minded our limited repertoire, since we might as well be the only ones in the world. We died embracing each other lost at sea, after the pirates have raided and burned the only place we could call ours. I was an aristocratic diplomat and you were an opera singer. I suspected you read my secret correspondence after nights of passion, a small fee for having you in my arms. When I heard you died of pneumonia, I jumped from a bridge on the coldest night of winter. You were my native wet nurse and I was the deaf blind daughter of a colonial officer. When war came, they took us outside to shoot us. I was so happy to feel the sun in your hand as I departed. I was the wife of a generalissimo, and you were my strongest son. I always took it personally that you didn't like women and didn't shed a tear at your funeral. You were a racist old woman from Alberta whose grandchildren never called, and I was the Pakistani phone operator trying to find your lost package. Our conversation was the longest either of us had that week. Last time we met was in a rehab center. I was a suicidal, middle-aged businessman who got rich in 20 years and lost it all in 20 minutes, and you were a lesbian teenager living from the street who was shaking back and forth with the punk down the hall. Despite our hating each other, almost instantly you made me wonder what kind of parent I could have been. Now that we go again to a world of a living, I hope that this time, no matter the age, no matter the race, no matter the body, I can love you, and you can love me back. Last time by Jose González Vargas I was the daughter of a mighty sovereign whose friend was as old and vast as the known world, and you were just an old slave, 
a leathery bag of bones put in the stones for the temples that my father demanded to reach above the clouds. I saw your body under the sun, I, despite your age, whipped by the foreman among those of your kind. Even though I saw you once and never knew your name, the image of your body remained close to my heart on my deathbed. You were a strapping young warrior, docile and unstoppable, whose life was trekking thick forests and snow laden steps with your horde. I was an old monk with aching legs, almost blind, dedicated to the mysteries of the fate, to preserving his light in this abominable world. From the distant north you came, tearing down the walls of the monastery where my sullen life had passed as a hidden scripturian praying to not be found. As I tried to save an ancient tomb or eyes, met while you opened my chest with the sturdy swing of your battle axe. We were two sailors in a fragile vessel crossing the ocean with gold and pearls and many woods, objects we could only dream to call ours one day. We were strong and fearless, men as only the sea can make. At night I will sing dirty melodies that make you laugh like a biting dog, or you will tell the same old tales as we share some rum. Neither of us minded our limited repertoire, since we might as well be the only ones in the world. We died embracing each other, lost at sea, after the pirates had raided and burned the only place we could call ours. I was an aristocratic diplomat, and you were an opera singer. I suspected you read my secret correspondence after all nights of passion, a small fee for having you in my arms. When I heard you die of pneumonia, I jumped from a bridge in the coldest night of winter. You were my native wet nurse, and I was the deaf-blind daughter of a colonial officer. When war came, they took us outside to shoot us. I was so happy to feel the sun and your hand as I departed. I was the wife of a genialissimo, and you were my stranded son. I always took it personally that you didn't like women, and then shed a tear at your funeral. You were a racist old woman from Alberta whose grandchildren were cold, and I was the Pakistani phone operator trying to find your lost package. Our conversation was the longest either of us had that week. Last time we met was in a rehab center. I was the suicidal middle-aged businessman who got rich in twenty years and lost it all in twenty minutes. And you were a less than teenager living from the streets, was shaking back and forth on the bunk down the hall. Despite our hating each other almost instantly, you made me wonder what kind of parent I could have been. Now that we rove to a goat of the living, sorry, now that we go again to a world of the living, I hope that this time, no matter the age, no matter the race, no matter the body, I can love you, and you can love me back. Jose Gonzalez Vargas was born in Maracay, Venezuela, and works as a freelance journalist in Spanish and English. He currently runs interviews for Vice Versa magazine. In 2015, he was a runner-up in Solsticios, one of the first SFNF short story contests in Venezuela. The Day After We Saved the City by Rose Victor We all slept late, and I woke up first, with Nick snoring through the wall, and the whole house gray and still. I'd left my suit and armor lying over the back of my desk chair, and the dirt had gotten all over the cushions. I found every muscle I'd used the day before, clenched up, now screaming at me as I stretched. The clock said 
Downstairs, I turned on the television to watch the morning news, just to see again Nix and Katie and I and the others. I hadn't known I climbed so high in that building before I jumped, but I guess I hadn't been thinking of it then. I heard the announcer inform us against the sharp-focused wheeling helicopter shots that the villain and his accomplices were all under arrest, but we already knew that. Nix had made sure of it. I had the coffee on by the time Katie thumped downstairs in her flannel pajamas, with her robe over her shoulders and her sword slung on the belts. "'Today's not a work day,' I said. "'Sit down. Relax.' She glared. "'It's always a work day for heroes.' I passed her the toast. The day after we saved the city, Katie did video chat with her parents, who wanted to make sure that she was all in one piece. "'Seriously, Mom, I'm all right. The three-armed guy barely touched me.' I whistled and walked barefoot in the kitchen, one ankle still a little sore while I tried to remember how I'd gotten that bruise on my elbow. The cyborg? When I fought him on the city hall roof? Waiting for Nix to come down, I amused myself looking at clips of us on YouTube, deleting a startling number of friend requests on Facebook. Why did secret identities go out of fashion? My phone still had Katie's text from halfway through yesterday, scrambled telling me to meet her at the corner of 5th and Main unread. Also, many missed calls, mostly from reporters. Nick's deigned to awaken around 10 a.m. and spent half an hour in the bathroom from the sound of the shower, and still came downstairs looking like something the cat brought in. The villain's last punch from yesterday had given him a black eye, but mostly it was the hair that finished the look. Why are you laughing, he said from the kitchen door. Comb, I said. Use it. I had to get mutant slime gunk out of my hair, sis. Can you blame me for going a little overboard with the scrubbing? The day after we saved the city, we put our suits in the washing machine and sat around the dining table, eating the toast I'd just burned and had to scrape. Nick said it didn't matter if you put on enough jelly. We left the weapon cleaning for later, and Nick's called the police back to make sure we'd given them all the information they needed the night before. After that, he thought the YouTube clips were hilarious and wouldn't stop humming the music someone had put over one. By noon, Katie had taken her swords off and stopped looking out the window. All right, maybe we can take a break today. We just vanquished the villains, I said. Take lots of breaks. Nix looked up from his table. They'll be back. We both stared at him. Not these ones, maybe, but others. We're not done yet, guys. So keep your swords, Katie. He stood up and shoved his hair out of his eyes, grinning. Well, you're right. Today, today, I said. Today we've got other things. The day after we saved the city, I dropped Katie off at the city hall to give our press release and Nix at the grocery store because we were out of milk. I drove to the hospital and found that most of yesterday's casualties had already been released, but I said hello to the rest of them. A little boy with a broken leg and eight stitches in his cheek asked me where my suit was. I said, it's in the laundry, which was true. He laughed, though. I drove past the city center, and most of the streets weren't even roped off anymore, but the vans with their aerials hadn't left. I kept my head down. I rounded us up, and we were going to go for dinner early at Jackson's Diner, but it was too full, and someone recognized us. After fifteen minutes, we finally got loose from the crowds. It'll get better, I said. It had better get better, said Katie. We got takeout instead from the little corner place on Merton, where the owner only said, You kids want a menu? Katie did. Nix and I already knew what we wanted. We went to the park to eat our burgers and watched the sun set behind the city. Our city. The city we'd fought in. The city where we'd met the enemy and won. And we knew that tomorrow there would be a new fight. 
a new crook with delusions of grandeur, a new madman with a plan. And the three of us would suit up and go out after them, just like we were supposed to, just like heroes did. But tonight it was just us three, and Nick stealing my fries, and Katie trying to use my phone because the camera on hers was broken, and we waited until dark came, and drove back home to the sound of cicadas and a quiet night. The day after we saved the city, we went to bed early, except for Nick's, who was remixing YouTube clips of us and giving them a soundtrack. For posterity. Oh, sheesh, I said. Good night. Rose Victor grew up in a book-invested house and enjoyed it greatly. She loves words, people, yarn, and classical music, as well as the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and, more recently, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. She has some experience with gerbils, mostly positive. Iris by T.D. Walker Afternoons in what he calculates must be spring, he leans against the little table and draws from memory. Irises, heavy and purple. In the ship's model library, species after species bloom on screen. He chooses instead to remember, to push against the page the way petals push back after a bee's launch. From this angle, the frill of the beard. From this, some irregularity of color, as imprecise as the signal they are chasing, is exact. Sometimes he allows himself to look back at a photograph. His mother, her face half obscured by a bloom, her face half obscured by the expression he knows as her observation. This is what calls them out. Not a mother's voice calling out for him to see the spring's first purple emerging from a tall green stalk, but some irregularity half obscured by what is watching. They have all sought the meaning of the signal. While he draws, he wonders whether those calling out will pluck a couple of his shipmates and press them, petals drying between the pages of an old novel, or if they will draw specimens time and again, adding after the life has gone some frills where there were none, or some greater intensity of color, or, if, like the iris, they will have bloomed for a time to be caught in light before the next season consumes them the regular pulse of the remaining signal becoming a picture of a running child, a blur behind the sharpness of the irises, waiting. T.D. Walker's poems and flash fiction have appeared in Abyss and Apex, The Cascadia Subduction Zone, Kaleidotrope, The Stonecast Review, and elsewhere. She blogs occasionally at her website, freethinkingahead.com. Explorers by Ethan Chua When they chose us, they told us how from Earth the Magellanic Cloud loomed twenty times the moon with a spiral arm that glowed and spun silver. We were five when we heard it, our fingers pointing upwards like compasses. We spent bedtimes listening to stories of Persian explorers. In the desert which once blanketed Central Asia, we imagined Azofian Camelback, writing about the constellation in his book of fixed stars. In our dreams we rode on an oaken boat with Vespucci, who saw it and wrote a letter home, said he'd seen three canopies, two bright, one obscure, the cloud bright, taking up a permanent space in our eyes. After that, they put leather notebooks in our palms, telling us to write letters home, too. By eleven, we filed into a glass cage with our fiberglass torsos and fabric limbs. Years passed, and one day 
we woke to see the cloud hurtling into our vision and dropped all our pens, which floated by our open fingertips. As we fell into orbit, we felt the tug of a foreign gravity and grew heavy again. Our voyage ended. A gray-haired professor with a bleached aluminum coat told us our last lesson. Asufi was wrong, and none of the stars in his book had ever been fixed. The red giant we circled in that faraway cloud rushed off with our years into emptiness. Every night after that, we counted the stars that were left from the ship's silent window. Those candles in the night pulsed and faded, faded more as the blackness between them stretched apart. There will come a time when even the explorers have nothing left to record. Tonight, we will press our fingertips against steel, feel them mold out this dark that only grows while we sleep. Ethan Chua is a Chinese-Filipino spoken word poet, physics nerd, and occasional shower singer. He's also the co-founder and literary editor of Ampersand, a literature and art journal for Philippine youth. His work is either forthcoming or published in major Philippine newspapers, the Philippine Graphic, Molendro Magazine, and Unoya Review. Read his work at medium.com slash at EZLC327. The Sign of the King by Mary Soon Lee Cold, that first night in the horse country, autumn on the way, but Lee didn't put up his tent, laid down on the grass, rolled in a blanket, stared up at the stars, waiting in case the wild horses came, sent somehow by King Zhao. Woke at dawn, no wild horses, his king, his friend, dead. Lee put the pack saddle and bags onto Narsen, mounted Quan, rode on into the steppe, pushing the thought of Zhao away. Nothing more that day than wind-stirred grass, the rhythm of horse beneath him, a hawk overhead. On the second night he drank a bottle of rice wine, found no comfort in it, woke up stiff, chilled, saddled the horses, rode, the grasslands extending as if without limit. At times, the memory of Zhao unstoppable, the king's broken body, the king struggling to speak, telling Li not to blame himself, but the fault Li's, the failure Li's, Li who had been captain of the king's guards. Li shouted out as he rode, shouted for forgiveness, for a sign for the wild horses to come. Nothing. On the fourth day, he saw smoke in the distance, an encampment of horse warriors, Lee wanted no company, turned his horses aside. When it rained at night, he set up the tent, otherwise he slept on the ground. He took care of the horses and little else, subsisted on dried meat and nuts, his hair tangled, greasy, his clothes grimy. One night in his tent, over the sound of rain, a pounding of hooves, Lee bolted outside. Lee, give me a hand, will you? Gan. Gan, who had been a king's guard once. Gan and two horses, only Gan. Lee unsaddled one of the horses, carried Gan's bags into the tent. Gan came in after him, dripping wet, a long fumbling delay while Gan lit a lamp. Lee blinked back brightness. You look rough, said Gan, foraging in a saddlebag. He pulled out a bruised pear, gave it to Lee. Here, eat something, then I'll get you cleaned up the bruised pear in Lee's hands. He stared down at it, 
Eat, Captain, said Gan. I'm not Captain anymore. I stepped down. Another way Li had failed Zhao by refusing Kang, Zhao's son. You'll always be Zhao's Captain, said Gan, and he wants you safe. Wanted, corrected Li. Once, said Gan. I didn't know how I was going to find you, but once I crossed the Guanyun River, the horses led me straight to you. The patter of rain, Gan watching over him. Li turned Gan's words over, trying to find in them the proof he needed. Tears streamed down Li's face. He took a bite of pear. Mary Soon Lee was born and raised in London, but now lives in Pittsburgh. She has won the Reasoning Award and been nominated for the Elgin Award for her poetry. The Sign of the King is part of her epic fantasy about King Zhao, more of which may be read at www.thesignofthedragon.com. And this has been the April edition of the Strange Horizons Poetry Podcast. We hope you liked hearing some long-form works this month. Feel free to leave us a comment on the website. And while you're there, check out the rest of this week's issue. We have the first of the week's reviews, as well as a roundtable discussion on Arabic SF that you do not want to miss. And as a reminder, Strange Horizons is an all-volunteer organization. We rely on the support of our readers and listeners. So, be sure to check out the donate link at the top of the page. And... Until next time, stay strange.